All right, so we're going to start uh, this series. We do it once a year, or at least we've done it four out of the five years. And I still, by the way, thank you for the appreciation and all of that. I should say, it's amazing to me it's been five years since I started this gig here. It's five years. I was at Villa Baptist Church preaching on a Sunday morning, and that was the morning that you all voted, those of you that were here, whether or not to let me do this job. And Jenny texted me and said that actually it was unanimous, that they want you to do the job. And so I was feeling all good about the unanimous vote, and she said, which will just make the impending impeachment all the more impressive, <laughs> which... I'm still waiting for that moment, but I, I want you to know that there has not been a day that I can remember that you all haven't made me feel appreciated, and I, just whenever, truthfully, and I think that I can speak for any, anybody in ministry of any sort, anytime you're told God used you to help me through this, or God used you to, to speak this, that, there's nothing better than that, and Dave's shaking his head, and Dave, you ministered for what, like 96 years? Is that what it was? <laughs> We're thereabouts, and, and so, right, and, and that's honestly the most impressive thing. Did you turn my television off? Is that why it's not doing anything here? Is it on now? Here we go. This is going to be another one of those Sundays. Okay, so this is a series. We do it once a year. It's called You Ask For It, and that's where you submit questions. But this year, it's a little bit more exciting to me, something that's pretty cool, because every year I feel like we're overloaded with questions, and they're good questions. Some of them a little bizarre, but they're good questions that come in, um, and some of them, they're not big enough to do a whole sermon on, and some of them are too big to do one sermon on, and so I try to work them into the various series that we do throughout the year. So we've got all of that taking place. I always save the ones that I don't get to, so I've got a stack at home through five years of ones that, well, I would like to get to these, and inevitably, then the next year comes along and a bunch of new ones come in that I really like. And so they keep getting buried and buried and buried. And I feel like there's probably some of you here that have been asking the same question for five years. And you get progressively ticked off that they're still not answering my question. So this is what's exciting about this, a solution. Several of you know Dick Mosier. Dick Mosier has been a, a, a backbone of this church for a long time. If, two weeks ago, I talked about Elijah's and Elisha's. Dig has been an Elijah in this church for a long time. Mentored more people here than, than you can shake a stick at. I don't even know what that phrase means, but we're going to go with it. But anyway, and, and I would count myself among that number, well, Dick doesn't have anything to do uh, except annoy Shirley at home. And so he had this idea, and we're all on board with it, that those questions that we're not going to make a sermon out of, they still deserve an answer. And so Dick, who knows the Bible, is going to answer those questions and we're going to post them on the, on the website so that those of you that don't get your questions answered, you'll be able to go and look at it and look them up and, and understand the, the biblical response to all of those things. This is an Elijah-Elisha moment. I mentioned that before, that one of the geniuses of the local church is that you have Elijahs who are able to mentor Elishas, who then become Elijahs who mentor more Elishas. That's the way the system's supposed to work. And this is one of those moments. So I'm thankful that we can take advantage of it. All right, here's the question for this week. And it seems like there's some form of question that comes up every time we do this series. Last year, uh, Jonathan kind of took one angle on this, but I want to address this question as well. I'm pretty much the only Christian in my family, and it depresses me. What can I do? Um, I think this question is appropriate whether or not you're the only Christian in your family, or if there is one person in your family who is not a Christian. And you want to know, what is it that I can do to influence this person that I love and I care about so very much? First of all, let me say, 
Let me say, first of all, that that being on the big screen, it's distracting to me. I see it flying above my head, and I feel like I need to duck. But it's fine. I'll get used to it. I get the depression. I really do. If, if this was me, if I was the person that wrote this question, and the people that raised me and that cared so much for me and that I loved so dearly, if they were unsaved, that would consume me. It would be all I could think about. And in fact, the more that I've grown in my faith and the more convicted I've become about the truth of God's word, the more it consume me because I would know what they're missing out on. My great fear, it's funny how my fears have changed uh, throughout the years. I used to be scared to death of space aliens. Now, whatever. They want to abduct me and whatever. I, I don't care. But uh, once you have children, it totally changes what your fears are. And my great fear, it's been unbelievable. The best moment of my life was not the birth of my children. It was the second birth of my children, the rebirth of my children. Baptizing my three kids into Christ was the greatest moment that I can remember. And yet I have this fear, particularly with the mind virus that exists at university levels. I don't want to see my kids walk away from the faith. That would tear me up. I don't ever want to have to see that. So I certainly understand how it would consume you if you had someone in your family who was unsaved. So let me offer a little encouragement to you this morning. If you've got your Bibles and on the back of that little bulletin, you see the three passages I want to look at this morning. But flip to John, the seventh chapter, John, chapter seven. And I want you to look at these first five verses here. And this um, may seem odd for me to say it's encouraging, but stick with me. John, chapter seven. Jesus is going to go to this Feast of Tabernacles. It's a feast that the Jewish people have. Verse 1. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee, purposely staying away from Judea, because the Jews there were waiting to take his life. But when the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, You ought to leave here and go to Judea, so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. No one who wants to be a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. Now look at verse 5. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. So that, by the way, verse 5 sheds light on their tone in verses 3 and 4. They're taunting Jesus. Oh, you're going to be a public figure. You're the Messiah, huh? Why don't you go and show yourself to the Jews? You're going to perform these acts? Go ahead. Let everybody see who it is that you are. That word there, I know sometimes in Christian language we use the term brothers and sisters in Christ to mean followers. That's not what this term is. This term means blood brothers. This, this, these are Mary and Joseph's sons, or at least Mary's. We don't exactly know when Joseph died, but these are Jesus's half brothers who are in essence taunting him. Go and do this. They don't believe in him. So let me come back to this. You have a family member that doesn't believe in Jesus. So did Jesus. That's something to keep in mind, okay? Now, I'm not saying this so that it relieves you of the burden that you feel. I would hope that that burden would stick with you and it would be something that you would carry with you every day until they come to know Christ. But it is meant to relieve you of any guilt that you may feel that you're not doing a good enough job and that's why your family member doesn't belong to Christ. Jesus had family members that did not believe in him. Those who had lived with Jesus for 30 years, he was 30 when this happened, 30 years did not believe in him, and none of them will before crucifixion. It will take seeing their brother, their half-brother crucified, and then back to life before they will come to acknowledge the truth of Jesus. So why didn't they believe? Well, the truth is the Bible doesn't tell us, so we have to speculate. But I think there's reasons that we all could understand why his brothers did not believe that he was the Messiah. And I think it starts right here. 
I think we're silly if we don't think that Jesus' brothers felt some sense of jealousy. Jesus is without equal when it comes to his intellect and his wisdom. He is schooling rabbis by the age of 12. That's got to be difficult. I mean, you can ask my brother what it's like to live with somebody. You knew it was coming. Let's just get it out of the way and say it. But seriously, it is hard enough to live up to a gifted sibling who is a uh, merciless sinner. But to live up to a gifted sibling who is perfect... There's got to be some level of jealousy that his brothers feel towards him. Secondly, what about guilt? What about guilt? Do you feel guilt being around Jesus? Um, if your parents have ever told you this, and for some of you that would be a long time ago that your parents would have told you this, but I'm going to say this is one area where I feel like I've got some expertise, having been a teacher for 20 years. If your parents have ever told you this, I believe that it's true. Over the years in teaching, I have noticed that some really neat kids... Some really good kids don't get invited to stuff. There's really pretty girls that don't get invited to go to the prom. And they're pretty on the inside and the outside, but they're left out. And there's guys that are really neat guys, cool guys, but they don't get invited to the parties. And you know why they don't get invited to that stuff? I'm sitting there looking at these other kids being like, what do you not see? These are some of the neatest people in the world, and you're leaving them out. You're leaving something. They don't do bad stuff. That's why they don't get invited. If your parents told you that, well, you're not being invited to this stuff because they know you're a good kid. That's not just your parents talking. It's the truth. Darkness hates the light because the light exposes darkness for what it is. And so there's this, this need of people who are doing dark, bad things to not be around those who are doing good things because that exposes them. Now, apply that to this situation. You have brothers who are sinners and Jesus, who is the living embodiment of the light, they're not going to naturally want to be around him and grow closer to him because that will expose their sin. I think guilt factors in. And then there's this. There's favoritism. Now, I know that we have this tendency to deify Mary and Joseph. We shouldn't. They were sinners. They needed a savior. It just so happened that they raised their savior. But Mary and Joseph are human like every single one of us are human. And you answer, any of you who are a parent, answer me a question. If you had a child who was perfectly obedient and perfectly respectful and perfectly kind all the time, would you not tend to favor that child? I'm thinking about it. And if I said, would you please come in here? And I heard one of my children say, no problem. And they come right when I call them. And when I ask them to do something, sure, I'll do that. I wouldn't even know what to do with myself. I mean, Jason just talked about a week of vacation, rest and relaxation. What is he talking about? I just had a week of vacation. It was the, I was through the ringer. I mean, I feel like I, I, I need a vacation from the vacation because I'm not dealing with perfect children, okay? That's an understatement. But anyway, imagine if you had an obedient child, would you not show favoritism to that child? And also, Mary and Joseph know who this is. They were told by an angel that this was God in the flesh. Do you think that they're not going to defer to Jesus in many situations? As a parent, when I say to do something, if Jesus responds and says, well, can I ask you a question about that? Can, can we talk about that for just a second? This is God in the flesh. Of course we can talk about that. Help me understand what I'm not seeing. Meanwhile, if one of my three kids, can we talk about, shut up. That's exactly how I respond to that. And you know Mary and Joseph are parents much like us. 
much like us, favoritism has to play in here. I think any of these, guilt, jealousy, favoritism, any of these could play into why his brothers despised him or held him in contempt. We don't know why, we can guess, but we do know that they held him in contempt. Mark 3 has an unreal passage. You don't have to go there, I'll put it on the screen. Has an unreal passage. This is, in the NIV, you know how it has like the section headings to describe what this little paragraph is going to be about. This is the section heading for Mark chapter 3 in the later portion of the chapter. Jesus accused by Pharisees and his family. Jesus is accused by his family, and this is what you read. Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him. They said, he's out of his mind. The man is crazy. He's out here performing all of this stuff, pretending to be a Messiah. He's not eating. The guy's gone nuts, and we have to take charge of him. We have to. Listen, this is the point. As a Christian, you may feel like you're the odd one out in your family, but you're not alone. Jesus felt it, felt it too, even in his own family. You remember these words? I've always read these words like a piece of wisdom from Confucius. Try not reading them like that. Try reading them as Jesus pouring out his heart. A prophet is not without honor except in his own town, his hometown and in his own household. Listen to what Jesus is saying. I'm here to seek and to save the lost. And people revere me and hold me in high regard everywhere except in my own household. They hold me in contempt in my own house and in my own town. Oh, this is the guy that I slept next to for 30 or for 20 years or for 15 years or however long they were kids. This is the one that I fought with boy, even though Jesus didn't do much fighting. It, th this is the one, and I'm not going to worship him as God. It's the same thing that people in his hometown of Nazareth, it's why he doesn't perform miracles there. Not even the perfect witness to the truth guarantees that your loved ones will embrace Christ. I want to say that again. This is to relieve any sense of guilt that you may feel. Even a perfect witness to the truth does not guarantee that your loved ones will come to embrace Christ. Why? Paul writes it this way. Because the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light. The light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Satan is hard at work. And he has blinded the eyes of many, even those in your family. And you say, well, it seems hopeless. Yeah, it seems that way, but I do want you to take heart. Why? Your family doesn't believe in Jesus. Jesus' didn't, family didn't believe. They mocked him. They thought he was crazy. And yet, how does that story end? How does that story end? You remember Jesus has a couple brothers that we know of? James, Jude. You might know them because they've written books in the Bible. God used them to author. They came to faith in Christ. It is James who writes in the very first chapter of his book to the New Testament church, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. It is clear that James came to a belief in the resurrected Messiah. So what my point is here, it's not hopeless. It may feel hopeless to you. It may feel like this has been going on for a long time. I've said everything I can possibly say. It's not making any difference. You may feel as though it's hopeless. It is not ever hopeless when you're dealing with the Savior. However, it's also not guaranteed. And we need to understand that. If you've got your Bible flip now, back to Matthew chapter 10. This is an important message that Jesus gives. And sometimes we misunderstand what he's saying here. Matthew chapter 10, look at verses 34 through 39. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth, Jesus says. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. 
For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. All of that because of me. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying my very presence, my existence will divide a father against his son. The father will believe, the son will reject me. It'll divide a mother against the daughter. The daughter will come to faith in Christ and the mother will disown the daughter because of it. A daughter-in-law and a mother-in-law will be at odds. Why? Because maybe the mother-in-law isn't a believer and she sees that her son is being led down this path of this cult of Christianity by the daughter-in-law and it will divide the family. Jesus says that's the nature of truth. It's the nature of me in the world. What he's saying is families will be divided over the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not hopeless, but it is not guaranteed. So then, the heart of the question, what can I do? That was the question that was asked. So let me give you this morning four things. That I'm going to put these in the order of how I see their importance. That is my take on this. This is not necessarily scriptural, although I will suggest that number one, you can't argue with. You can try, but you would be wrong. Number one is number one, and then the rest of them may be in a different order. I don't know, but this is the order that I see them in their importance, okay? Number one, pray. And then keep praying. Now listen, I know when I say that, your tendency is going to be to gloss right over it. All right, yeah, prayer. What's the next one? What can I actually do? That's a big problem for us. I know that we're living in an era now where everybody says thoughts and prayers and people say it, but they don't mean it. And in fact, you got a whole group of people that get angry whenever people say thoughts and prayers because nobody actually means it when they say it. It's just a cliched phrase. My point is that we have to mean it. If you want your loved one to come to know Christ, you have to mean it when you say that I'm going to pray for that individual. Here's what we know that the world doesn't know, and I really want you to get this. I really want you to believe this. We have to. That prayer is the single most powerful way of influencing the world. The world will reject that idea. They will scoff at that idea. They get mad whenever there's a school shooting and people say, well, I'm going to pray for this situation. Oh yeah, your prayers aren't doing anything. Your prayers are ridiculous. How about we do something? That's the way the world responds. But a Christian understands that it is the single most powerful way of influencing the world. We always look to people in positions of power because they can write laws. They can do stuff. No, no, no. What I'm telling you is that an elderly widow on her knees in her family room is doing more to influence the world than any, any position of power that an individual is operating in this earth. I'm telling you right now, without question, I believe that. We try to be clever and come up with all of these things that we can do about the situation. But what is prayer doing? Prayer is the invisible force that moves the hand of Almighty God. Now you answer me a question. You organize some sort of giant charity event that's going to bring people something. I, I don't know what you're going to do. You're going to bring in hundreds of people and you're going to bring in all of their money and you're going to pool it and you're going to put it all towards this cause. That's a great thing to do. But if the hand of God moves in that situation, is he not capable of doing more in one split millisecond than you can in a hundred years of rallying all the people in the world? That's what I'm getting at. If prayer is the invisible force that moves the hand of God, 
It is the single most important thing you could possibly do in any situation, in any event in the world. I want you to flip now to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells a parable. It's an overlooked parable. We hardly ever read it. We hardly ever pay attention to it, but we should. And for whoever asked the question, this is the parable that you need to concentrate on. It starts in verse 1. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. So that's a great judge. He doesn't fear God. He doesn't care about anybody. He's just a judge. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused. Of course he refused. He doesn't care about God and he doesn't care about people. So what does he care? He refused. But finally he said to himself, verse 4, even though I don't fear God or care about men. I love that. Who says that to themselves? Well, I'm a giant jerk. But in spite of that... Because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming and asking all of these questions. And then the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. Will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? Okay, you get what's going on here, right? Jesus is saying even an unjust punk of a judge is eventually going to get worn out and just give in. Not because he's good and because he cares about you, but because your persistence is eventually going to wear him down, right? I mean, that's how I got Jenny to marry me. Just persistence. Eventually, she's like, ah, whatever. Okay, that's it. You just remain persistent in the whole thing. And Jesus is saying, but now you're dealing with a God who you know loves you and cares about you and wants what's best for you. You're not dealing with a judge that doesn't care. Will he not, will this loving God not respond to you? Of course he will. Pray and keep praying. I'm telling whoever asked this question, be that woman. Be the persistent widow. Pray, then pray some more, and then pray some more every day. Even when you're praying for your meal at lunch, and it's a two-minute prayer, or it's a 30-second prayer, include that loved one that you are wanting them to come to know Christ. Badger the Lord with your prayers about your loved one. Ceaselessly pray every day for that individual. Secondly... My second suggestion is to lead a life of joy. What do I mean by that? I remember when I was in fifth grade, we moved here when I was in fifth grade, um, I was going into the sixth grade, and I knew who Mrs. Norris was, and I prayed every day, like the persistent widow, that I would not get Mrs. Norris. Because Mrs. Norris, she had this, she had a face that when it was just her normal face, she looked like she was angry at the world. And all of the kids talked about how mean Mrs. Norris was. At the end of the summer, we got our little notifications, and I got Paul Nicholson as my homeroom teacher, and I was ecstatic because I had avoided Mrs. Norris. No, no. The problem is if you had Nicholson for homeroom, you got Norris for your English classes, not Mrs. Johnson. And so I went to school terrified of Mrs. Norris. I don't have to tell you, if you knew Sharon Norris, I loved that woman. She was like one of my favorite teachers. She had this dry sense of humor, which I loved. There was this dude in my class named Brian who was... Maybe not the, the most well-behaved child in the world. And every day, Mrs. Norris would walk over to him with that face that I was just talking about and stare at him over the top of her glasses. And she had the same phrase every day. She would say, Brian, strive. Strive, young man, for maturity. And then she would turn and walk <laughs> off. And I've held on to that. I love that phrase, strive. And Brian did. He, he strove. He never got there, but he strove for it every day. All right. I had a perception of Mrs. Norris that was 100% wrong, 180 degrees wrong. Your lost family. 
undoubtedly has a perception of what Christianity is and who shaped it. All of those kids in, in, in the elementary school that never had Mrs. Norris, never experienced Mrs. Norris, they're the ones, and they have shaped your loved one's view of Christianity. Or maybe an event has happened in their life that has shaped their view, and they see it as misery. They see it as a bunch of rules that you have to follow, and there's no fun, there's no liberty, none of that. Your job is to live in such a way that it shatters that perception. That doesn't mean giddiness. Giddiness is annoying. You don't want to annoy people. And it doesn't mean perpetual happiness because that's phony. You and I know in our Christian lives it's not perpetual happiness. We have sorrow. We have struggles. We have strife. But we have something that gets us beyond that. What I mean is this right here. In all things keep the John 14 motivation. What is John 14? That's when Jesus looks at his disciples and says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. And you and I say what? Are you kidding me? Do you know what I'm through? How can my heart not be troubled? Do you know the scans that I just got back? Do you know what is happening to my loved one? Do you know what the state that my marriage is in right now? How can my heart not be troubled? I just lost my child. How can my heart not be troubled? I don't think I'm going to have a job at the end of this month. All of these things that happen that drag us down. What does Jesus go on to say? You believe in God, believe also in me. Do you believe in Jesus? If you believe in Jesus, what does he promise? In my Father's house there are many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go there to prepare a place for you, will I not come back and take you to be with me so that you may also be where I am? What is the motivation of John 14? Regardless of any circumstance that happens to us here, we have a mansion awaiting us in glory. We will be surrounded by the saints and those who have gone on before and lived lives of faithfulness, loved ones that we long to see again. We will join hands in praises to God throughout all eternity where there is no pain and no sorrow and no death. That's the motivation of John 14. And if you don't think that that's going to change the way that you live your life and the way that you deal with those circumstances, then you haven't experienced it. And you have to. Your loved ones have to see that in you. Number three, this is where I say two through four, you might reverse the order, I don't know. But you got to share the gospel. The gospel, the hope of Jesus Christ, you got to share it with them. Uh, there are people in this world that think you are holy. And some of you right now are saying, uh, not, not me. No, they really do, okay? They think you are holy. And why? Because you go to church. And so they naturally assume, well, I go to church. They're one of the good people. There are people who believe that I am holy because, oh, he preaches. And, you know, he knows about the Bible and stuff. So he's a holy dude. Okay, there are people who think that. When it comes to your family, those are not these people. They do not believe that you are holy. They know you. If there's one group of people that know how unholy I am, it's my wife and my kids and my brother and my sister. They know my flaws. They know that I am not the living embodiment of Jesus here on earth. So don't try to pretend that, that, that that's the case. You cannot fake this with your family. Don't attempt to. It's either real in your life or it isn't. And if it is real, if the gospel is real in your life, look at what Paul says. He says, it is the power of God that brings salvation. That's what the gospel is. Share that gospel and here's how I would do it. I would share the difference that the gospel has made in your life, particularly. Acknowledge your flaws. Let them know that you, about the grace that you have learned to show others and that you can show others. Look, sometimes when you show grace to somebody who has harmed you, that's going to blow that loved one away. And they may even say something like, I, I don't even understand how you can behave like that. Boom, perfect opening. I wouldn't have never understood it either before Jesus.
But when you understand the grace that you have been shown, the way that I understand the grace that I've been shown, how could I not show it to others? That's what I'm talking about. Live that gospel. You and I are called to preach the gospel in all the world, but sometimes we are focused in all the world on the other side of the world, in missions. Well, all the world includes in our own household as well. Preach the gospel always. And fourthly, share scripture. Share scripture, and I mean even the uncomfortable portions of scripture. Ask them. Uh, This again... uh, This isn't a foregone conclusion this is going to work. I'm just trying to process through how this might look. Ask them if they believe that this is it or if there's something after this life. And no matter what they say, well, this is it. You know, we're just going to go into the grave and that's it. There's not going to be anything on the other side. Or, yeah, I think there's something on the other side, but I don't know what it is. Right, that's the point. Whatever they say, ask them how it is that they know that to be true. And what are you going to reveal? What are they going to acknowledge that they don't know? That no human... Human knows. We can't. It's the uncertainty of humanity. It's going to be revealed by those questions. Ask them, if there's a heaven, do you think that you're going to go there? Gauge their response and understand what it might be and then explain why you are confident you are going to heaven by stressing to them, I'm confident because it has nothing to do with me. If it had anything to do with me, I would not be confident of my future state. But it doesn't have anything to do with me. Willfully acknowledge your flaws. They already know them anyway. Say, how in the world could a guy like me make it into heaven? No, none of us could. The hell is what we've all earned. Heaven is something that we could never earn. This is, the, this is the way to approach family members in this situation. Read to them Romans 3. Don't hide from that passage. The details that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That none of us are capable on our own of attaining that level of heaven. The temptation I know is going to be to shy away from those kind of passages. Why? Because we're afraid it might be a turn off to tell our loved ones that they're sinners in need of a savior. Um, This is an account from Randy Alcorn. Some of you know Randy Alcorn is a Christian author. Um, Explains why that's a terrible idea. So listen to this. I was raised in a non-Christian home. A year after I became a Christian at age 15, my mom came to know Jesus. But my father was the single most resistant person to the gospel I have ever known. He had told me to never talk to him about that religious stuff again. At age 84, my dad was diagnosed as having terminal cancer. It threw him into such despair, he attempted suicide at least once. But before one of his surgeries, I came in early, an hour or so before they took him back. I prayed that somehow, in his pain, God would break through to my father. I opened to Romans and read some verses from chapter 3. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I knew my father had been offended at the idea of being called a sinner. So part of me really wanted to gloss over this and move quickly past the bad news to the good news. I was greatly tempted to underemphasize the truth of human depravity, but I forced myself to keep reading God's word, verse after verse, talking about our sin. I told myself, if I really loved my dad, I had to tell him the whole truth. And if God was going to do the miracle of conversion, that was his job, and it was mine just to tell the truth. Finally, we made it to Romans 6. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. After half an hour of going from verse to verse, I looked up at my dad and asked, Dad, have you ever confessed your sins and asked Jesus Christ to forgive you? Of course, I knew the answer. No, he said, and then paused for what seemed like a long time. I assumed that was the end of the conversation, so I thanked the Lord in my mind for giving me the opportunity, helping me to share the truth, even though I was sure that my dad wouldn't accept it. And finally, out of nowhere, he finished the sentence. No, I haven't. 
but I think maybe it's about time I did. To say that I was shocked is the ultimate understatement. What I and many others had prayed for all those years, all those years, persistent widow, never stopped praying, and it was being answered at age 84 in a bed of terminal cancer. And I couldn't believe it. In some ways, I still can't. My point is this, Alcorn writes, Part of me wanted in the world's worst way to skim over or to minimize the truth of human depravity. And yet, listen, without the bad news, there is no good news. The good news is unnecessary without the bad news. Without the truth of God's holiness and the truth of our sin, the grace of Christ on our behalf becomes meaningless or irrelevant. The worst thing I could have done to my father was to hold back the full power of God's truth. Without knowing that truth, it is possible, it is possible, to repeat a prayer for some gospel booklet, but it is impossible to experience the grace of God. For grace is not simply kindness. It is a specific response to sin. If there is no knowledge of sin, no acknowledgement of sin, then there can be no experience of grace. And the other mistake I could have made was this. I could have believed that my dad had turned his back on the truth for so many years that his creator had given up on him. I could have withheld God's grace from my father, reasoning that when I'd shared it before, he'd always been hostile, so there was no point in doing it again. That too had been a temptation. How many times I'd shared the truth just to be rejected. But to withhold God's grace or God's truth is equally wrong and equally devastating. May we as Christians never make the mistake of choosing between truth and grace. May we eagerly offer them both to a world that so desperately needs to know the one who is full of both grace, and truth. So let me answer the question. Best answer I can give you, what can you possibly do if you are the lone Christian in your family? Three Ps. Number one, pray and don't stop praying. It may take till age 84. Don't stop praying. Secondly, live a life of praise. Be joyful. Keep your eyes set on things above and that will make a difference. It will make an impact. It will be noticed. Whether you see it or not, it will be noticed. And third and finally, don't stop pursuing. Don't believe that your creator ever gives up on any of his creations. Until the very last moment, he is knocking at the door. Don't you stop either. I can't guarantee it, but I know that in God, all things are possible. Would you pray? Father God, I thank you for this truth. I thank you for the promise of your word that when we share the truth, it will not come back void. Father, whoever asked this question, I know they aren't alone. Many of us have those in our lives that are um, outside of Christ. They don't know you. Or maybe they think that they know you, but they've never been obedient to the gospel. Father, help us to love them enough to share that truth. Let us not fear rejection, rejection by men. Let us not fear awkwardness or whatever it is that we may come up with as a reason. We know Satan will provide us the excuses. Help us to ignore them and to love each other. To love each other enough to be people of grace and truth. We pray this in the name of your son. The embodiment of both of those things, grace and truth. Your son Jesus and it's in his name we pray. Amen. If you have a decision to make, if you want to come to know Jesus, if maybe you've heard the gospel from a loved one and it's time for you to respond, if you're ready to be that 84-year-old dad that says, maybe, maybe it's time that I did, now's your chance. Would you come?